we're all kind of, I'm a woman, you're Latin, you're black, so we're all silenced, but we all have our various disenfranchisements. Are we talking about Me Too? Me Too and just like racism and everything. We were recording all of that, but don't worry, I'm not going to release it. I'm just going to blackmail you with it. I'm just going to. The sound quality will be terrible, by the way, because we weren't holding mics up. Don't worry, obviously. I'll deny it to be on the tape. Okay, that's Mel Gibson talking. No, you could. You have actually really good. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On today's episode, we speak to two historians. Justin Williams is an assistant professor of history at City College of New York. He's also a comedian, for real. Then we talk to Gerald Horn, a professor of history and African-American studies at Houston University. Make sure that you sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show so you can hear bonus episodes. For this week, we bring you our extended interview with Dr. Justin Williams and Dr. Gerald Horn. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Rate and review us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. Make sure you check out my op-ed in the Daily News called Mayor de Blasio, It's Not Too Late to Honor the Legacy of Erica Garner. And I implore him to make the very basic changes that Erica Garner had asked of him. It's based on my interview with her. And in case listeners don't know, Erica Garner was the daughter of Eric Garner, who was killed in a chokehold. I spoke to Erica Garner a few weeks before she died of a heart attack at the age of 27, leaving behind two children. And she never stopped fighting for justice against police brutality to honor her father, but also on behalf of all people who are victims of police brutality or potential victims. So please go to the Daily News and look for that and share it, because I would really like Bill de Blasio to feel some pressure to actually do some of the things she asked for. Again, they're very simple. It's to fire the police officer who killed her father, release his records, and make the chokehold illegal. And you can find that pinned to my Twitter page if you go to twitter.com slash kthelps. Again, that's twitter.com slash letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. Please share it so that Bill de Blasio actually does the right thing. Let me just check in with my main man, my side piece, my platonic side piece, Gabe Pacheco. <laughs> What's going on, everybody? Platonic side piece, Gabe Pacheco in the house. How's Today, it going? Uh, I'm feeling great. I'm flying high on some uh, some Tylenol cold max medication. Nice. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're, we're feeling it. I'm feeling it. I'm comfortably numb. Nice. I like that. Nice uh, deep cut by some w- really white band. I don't know. Fish or the other Pink one? Floyd. Pink Floyd. I always confuse them. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So, uh, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. You got it. Yes, sir. May I have another another um, interesting episode of the Katie Helper Show? How's that for a segue? You can hear the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 WBAI.org. We're really excited. We have someone live in the flesh, uh, Justin Williams, comedian, scholar, smart guy. He has his own show. He's been on the show before. He's a vet. He's a return He's a recidivist, a Katie Halper recidivist. And, um, we tried to set him free, and he came right back. Yeah, he can't help it. He wishes he could quit us, but he, he can't. can't. though. He's addicted to the show. He's addicted to the show. Might as well face it. You're addicted to the show. Um, so put your hands together for Justin Williams. Woo! Justin, tell us about yourself. You were, you're one of the smartest comedians out there, I'd say. Oh, God bless you for saying something like that. that that's, uh, that's too much. No, it's it's too little. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, what what should I say about myself? I'm I'm a comedian. Um, I'm a Sagittarius. Nice. 
Uh, I teach history at the City College of New York. I'd love to sit in on one of your history classes sometime. What are what's the syllabus, man? Do we have like uh, what what are we studying this semester? I'll be teaching Africa since independence uh, at the Uptown campus, the main campus of City College, in this spring semester. So feel free to just drop in. Can we? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Katie Halper show goes to goes to college. I might, Justin Williams. Yeah. Ben Jealous invited us to uh, be graduate students at the Prince at the Woodrow Wilson School at uh, Princeton. Remember, we were going to go do that, like an Ernest movie. Ernest goes to whatever. Katie and Gabe <laughs> go to Princeton, but we'll go to to CUNY also. My mom used to teach at LaGuardia. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, yeah. Go to my website, justinwilliamscomedy.com. I perform all over this great uh, this great region, this great country, great this great world. I'll, uh, so yeah, catch a date. I got that. My album mostly woke is out on uh, iTunes and Spotify and Amazon. Oh, nice. You know, since since late October, it's been streamed over a hundred thousand times. Nice. So oh, we'll play some excerpts from it if that's. If oh, that's please good. do. Yeah. This is a backlash moment, but it's the same thing. Like I'm black, so I get this. Here's what Donald Trump is. Um, have you ever talked to a black person that still insists that OJ is innocent? <laughs> It's the same fucking mentality. <laughs> that black person knows damn well at this point that OJ is guilty as a motherfucker. But they're not supporting OJ because of anything that OJ has ever done or said. They are supporting OJ because it pisses you off. <laughs> That's what the Trump thing is. They will support anything Donald Trump does as long as liberals don't like it. Donald Trump could have a gun to their wife's head and they're like, does Huffington Post have an opinion on this? <laughs> If Huffington Post doesn't like Donald Trump having a wife to my gun and say, like, bye, baby. Please do. And then your album before that was um, Black and Comfortably Middle, middle class. class. Yeah. That was a, like a, a video. That was like a special. That was I don't black even know if I can even call it a special, but yeah, it was like a concert film. What? And you have a very funny stand-up show, monthly stand-up show? I have two monthly stand-up oh, shows. okay. Tell us I'm, about I'm it. I'm double Hudson in it. Uh, I have one at the Creek in the Cave, uh, Death Comedy Jam. And uh, can I just say that I attended that one and performed at it uh, about a week ago, and it's the best. If you want to watch Justin Williams do fantastic banter, uh, he's one of my favorites to watch uh, up top with uh, Akash Basim. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, you guys are just a dynamic duo up there. That show, yeah, that show is great because it's just like, it's just what happens when, you know, alcohol and no script. Uh, so it's great. You get to really explore the space. Yeah, no safety net, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's go up there and try it. And then we have a, a monthly in New Jersey in downtown Newark uh, called the Brick City Comedy Review. That's a that's a very fun show as well. It's very nice. Very nice. Yeah, and I uh, one of the funniest things that I ever saw that you and Akash, your co-host, do at um, Death Comedy Jam is, uh, which I've also performed in and always had a great time in, one of the funniest things was when you and Akash talked about Mel Gibson and you analyzed what he had said to his to his wife. You're not lying to me about fake tits. So they look ridiculous. Get rid of them, why don't you? Anyway, uh, keep them if you want, you know, but they're too big and they look stupid. They look like some Vegas bitch. They look like a Vegas whore. Mm -hmm. And you go around sashaying around in your tight clothes and stuff. I won't stand for that anymore. And you kind of triage the most offensive parts of it. Yeah, that yeah, that the parts that everyone was offensive, the most offended by, wasn't even the like most offensive part when you actually broke it down. Yeah, yeah, it was actually the is the racial stuff was actually <laughs> just as hardcore as the gender stuff. You look like a fucking bitch on heat, and if you get raped by a pack of niggas, it'll be your fault because you provoked it. You are provocatively dressed all the time with your fake boobs. You feel you have to show off in tight outfits so that you see your. But even within the racial stuff, he said a pack of N-words. And if you get raped by a pack of n****s, 
right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and your point was like, it's not even the N-word part. Like, that's, it's the pack part. It's the pack part. Yeah, yeah that's actually the most offensive. And yeah, dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a... Uh, He's a renaissance <laughs> man of, of bigotry and hate. It's Yeah, it's like the most hateful uh, sentence because there's also sexual violence at the top of the right. sentence. So we were talking about it. It's like, that could be the most hateful sentence. Yeah ever uttered he's a masterful masterful he's like shakespeare very efficient (laughs) yeah and it's economical and it's always good to visit revisit those tapes like yeah yeah, i listen to the mel gibson tapes every once in a while because it's just like it's it is one of those things where it is like unfiltered wildness it goes what like it goes what is a thing that's like a 10 on a 10 scale it's like i'm gonna go 11 well (laughs) also what i like about him is when he got arrested and he called the cop like a jew i read to him the officer's account of the words he used that night expletive Jews and to officer me are you a Jew and the Jews are responsible for all the wars in the world because yeah. I just felt that it was cool to be stereotyped as something we're not usually yeah when is the last time you've seen like an episode of uh, you know uh, chips yeah with Goldberg <laughs> DJ Booker right. with, with his officer new sidekick Goldberg, yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sergeant uh, Sergeant Ma- Sergeant Stein. Meyerowitz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this and- on this episode of uh, SVU. Well, Detective oh, you know, Shlomo. no, you know who they do have Munch. They, they have got that guy Richard Belzer, but he's the first. He he broke the the gefilte fish ceiling. Yeah. The matzo the matzo ceiling. Yeah. Um, but also you said that Mel Gibson, given how racist he is. You and Akash were like, he deserves an Oscar for that because he was such a good friend to Danny Glover. Yeah, that was good acting. Right? Because he really, you really thought he loved Danny Glover. For four films. Yeah. I, yeah, thank you. I gotta start. Uh, I'm glad you remember all this because yeah. I was like, this is actually a pretty good bit. Yeah, you bring it's it back. It's not timely anymore. It's like, it's, it's no, just like, wait. Isn't just it from wait. like 2009? Yeah, but it, it, something will come up. Mel Gibson will be nominated. You can pretend you saw a movie the other day. Well, he's like back now. He's been rehabilitated. Like he's like at award shows and he's on there stage. There you go. They even put thank him God in- for me too and all the rapists. <laughs> he's a relative <laughs> he prince. Yeah. <laughs> they had him and Danny Glover present like an AFI award together. It's an honor to be here. You look great, man. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Man, it's not coming. It's been, I haven't seen Danny for many years. It's yeah. donkey's years. And it was like, everyone was so happy to see him together. But it was like, was there ever a conversation where Danny's like, hey, yeah. man, what's... You know, because Danny's like a radical yeah, racial super, justice leftist. Yeah, like who goes to Venezuela and like, you know, works with Chavez. I mean, I'm not... That's obviously for me, that's not a dig. But yeah, he's not just like mainstream lib. He's actually radical, yeah. What were their conversations at the craft service table? Like in between takes during part four? Like did they need Joe Pesci to come along and like you know, really lubricate the conversation again and like ease the tensions? Right? Like in part two, they're battling apartheid. I think there must be some mistake. Say what? I don't think you really want to go to South Africa. Why not? Because you're black. You are. He is. Of course I'm black. That's why I want to go to South Africa. To join up with my oppressed brothers. To take up the struggle against the tyranny of the racist, fascist, white minority regime. Fascist white regime. One man, one vote. One man, one vote. Free South Africa, you dumb son of a bitch. You dumb son of a bitch. Look, I've heard just about as much as I want to. I'm going to ask both of you. And I'm sure that like Mel Gibson was like, you know, apartheid isn't so bad. It's another testament to what a good actor he is. You know, he he probably had to like really get into character being anti-apartheid was like a real struggle for him. I also liked it that when it looked like it was all falling apart for him. He had that movie. The first like reboot attempt of Mel Gibson was The Beaver, where he had a beaver puppet on his hand. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. Bloody hell. Look at you. Who are you? I'm the beaver, Walter. And I'm here. To save your damn life. It was a movie that was supposed to be a drama, but accidentally became a hilarious comedy. Have a look at this. A beaver? 
face of you, Jack. Maybe that's the first step for all celebrity rehabs, is they're like, okay, you did something egregious, now let's give you a, a Muppet to work with. This is a joke, right? No, son, it's a fresh start. <laughs> like, Louis C.K. is going to come back, but they'll have, like, a, like a little uh, a cute, yeah. snuggly, little hedgehog that he's got to talk to the whole movie. Yeah. It could be a woodchuck. I just wanted to throw in a curveball. But, uh... Do you think he's finished, by the way? Do you think... Louis C.K.? Yeah. I don't know. It's borderline, right? Borderline. I say uh, give it four four years. Four more years. Four years. That's what four I got. More years I got money be. on he'll be back in four years. Okay, what do you say? What What are you putting money on? I don't know because there's an element of there. I mean, it, you know, it's the work relationship. It's the surprising. It's the blocking. Yeah, the blocking the door. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so it, so it goes into a category to where it's like, uh, I don't know. Right. You know, it's like some people tried to... Uh, you know, comics that I respect, but in all fairness, his peers tried to kind of minimize that. I'm like, eh, right. you can't be like, oh, it was just that. It actually takes on a different psychological level. Yes, uh, that's a major abuse. That's not just like not picking up signals. That's like I'm going to make it so it's hard for this person to exit. I'm going to make egress. I just want to use that word. And I know people, and I know somebody he did it to that didn't come forward. So that, that means even the examples that are there, there's right. probably more of them too. So it's uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. So maybe not. He's he's not gonna get mainstream fame again, but he could go back to sort of like like a cult status, like a YouTube star thing, you know, because he never blew up doing a podcast. But now, now he he's he's burned all of his bridges. So I could see him sort of in a cabin in the woods, just speaking into the void. I, I would like him to become a YouTube star. I'd be like uh, Louis C.K. to work with like Chocolate Rain. That would be a good. I, he could like join the re oh Hillary's back from the resistance, but back when there was the when she was like in the woods, they could have like yeah they could like co sublet a do a we work in the in the woods in a cabin or something. <laughs> are you working on anything in terms of scholarship, or are you focusing more on teaching the youths? Uh, so uh, like all my stuff is like either published already or in the pipeline to be published. So I'm getting ready to start a new project, and I'm I'm gonna write about the rise of the African consumer class. Ooh, that's what I'm gonna write about. Wait, so when you say African consumer class, are we talking about um, uh, loot crates and blue aprons ending up in uh, Kenya? What, what do we mean by that? I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Nigerians that charter private jets to go shopping in London. Oh, uh, wow. To, to go back to their Lagos uh, apartment, uh, the two properties. I'm talking about uh, Angolan uh, heiresses. That, that, that buy billions of dollars of the Portuguese stock market and buy uh, Rembrandts from Portuguese. Uh, <laughs> wow. I, I guess I was looking at the world through some rose-tinted rose glasses. I was like, ooh, a rising middle class. And you're like, nope. Uh, uh, the 0.0001% the of oh, well, the so, oligarchy. So it gets, yeah, but lines get blurred, right? So there is a people, that, there are global elite that are wealthy, but the cost of living is so low that what is considered middle class in a place like Nairobi would be considered wealthy to us, but it's not globally wealth. So like middle class could be like, oh, sure. I have like a six bedroom house. My kids go to private school. I have a driver. That could be like an upper middle class existence. Uh, but yeah, it, but also the the oligarchy is like I Instagram videos of me pouring out Cristal on Ooh. top of my Rolex. 
there is there are instances of this in Mexico as well, where there's like uh, rich Mexican kids of Instagram, and it's just like the children of the narcos and like yeah. children of bureaucrats that shouldn't have any of this money, but have like yachts and like gold AK-47s and just like yeah. have uh, new uh, Maseratis parachuted down from the skies <laughs> onto their like compounds for their birthdays. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's this extreme um, display of affluence and wealth in third world countries uh, that's um, you know. Uh, perplexing to say the least. It is well, so it's sort of odd, right? It's because it's like, of course, oligarchy is bad. Of course, the economic, uh, but it's in the situations of the, the deprivation and the exploitation was so extreme that in some cases they represent sort of a positive trend because they're moving some of this money back into their home country's economy and sort of there's a, sort of an infrastructure to sort of uh, maintain the rich. But of course, it's like the divide between the rich and the poor. It's like so you get like insane inequality, right? It's like. Uh, like uh, the kind of things that you see in like a place uh, like a, a, a really well-developed economy like South Africa, you're going to start seeing across Africa now where it's going to be like you have people that are literally living in existence that you might envy as a New Yorker living next to people that don't have running water and electricity. When you say Africa, though, isn't it like you're not talking about Morocco, uh, Algeria. Do, do, do North African countries get offended that you're erasing them? No, no, because they erase themselves through like sort of so the way African studies is broken up is, you know, sort of North Africa sort of uh, is sort of almost sort of absorbed into the Middle East. Right. M-E-N-A. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and so sub-saharan africa and it's very much a complete racial division mm. between the sub-saharan like the sahara desert right it's like oh black people live down here uh yeah, and it's you know you can't even say Arabs right because there's like Berbers and right. all, you know all kinds of different groups right but you say those other people live up here and those people living in North Africa uh, a lot of times sort of uh, sometimes engage in that uh, because it gives them sort of a privileged position right. within the racial order because right. um, you could some people will say oh culturally it's like eh but no if you go just to the southern tip of the Sahara those people are Muslims as well but they're different right. you know they're black though so right. that makes them different you know. And tell us about your book, Pan-Africanism in Ghana. African Socialism, Neoliberalism, and Globalization. Yes. Uh, so uh, Pan-Africanism was a political movement that came out of the uh, sort of the aftermath of slavery that said that all African peoples, uh, you know, in the diaspora sort of had a, a claim and, you know, should even return to Africa. Um, so you see it you know manifest itself in the you know the garvey movement and uh, pan-african congress uh, uh, movements um so i was writing about how that particular movement in the context of decolonization in the cold war starts off um as an anti-colonial uh and and a lot of times anti-capitalist uh sort of uh, movement in Africa, but uh, by the time you get to economic reform in the early uh, 80s, that entire legacy actually becomes part of a heritage tourist infrastructure in Ghana that's part of like propping up the capitalist uh, project there. Um, so it's about how you can even you it's like it's so it, to sort of simplify it it's the way that African countries even if they had a socialist past can sell socialism mm. so it's just basically the African version of the Che t-shirt exactly both Gabe and I we were about to make that joke right? yeah we were yeah. about to jump in and be like so you mean it's the Che t-shirt but in Africa yeah, yeah or like you go to Chile and they've got Victor Hara t-shirts you know he was the singer who was killed uh, in the but, stadiums yeah. right after the junta took over with Pinochet but uh, yeah, man. Uh, so socialist cheek, yeah. right? Yep. TM, a copyrighted. And what about? Uh, can you talk about Martin Luther King? Because t of course this week is Martin Luther King Day, 
And um, we're used to, or I'm used to Republicans battling, uh, you know, claiming Martin Luther King. But I, I got into a thing, not to be too Twitter-ish, but I quoted a couple years ago, I, I wrote a piece. It was like Mar the 12 most anti-capitalist quotes of Martin Luther King. And, um, you know, people usually really like it. Sorry, the 11 most anti-capitalist quotes from Martin Luther King. You see, I also have a dream, which is that I had made 12 instead <laughs> of 11. And this year, I kind of made it a little provocative. I said, uh, I, I tweeted some MLK quotes that centrists aren't particularly fond of. But I didn't think that people would actually push back against this and accuse me of cherry-picking uh, his words to fit an agenda. It's not an agenda. He was a, I mean, he was... Uh is very much in favor of socialism and socialist policies. Now we are dealing with issues that cannot be solved without the nation spending billions of dollars and undergoing a radical redistribution of economic power. Yes, yes. We must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. America's opportunity to help bridge the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. And the real question is whether we have the will. And he also has a socialist inner circle, like Bayard Rustin is a socialist, yeah. was a socialist at the time, yeah. And apparently JFK tried to, like, strong-arm him against hanging out with uh, communists. And I just heard historian um, Gerald Horn, mm -hmm. he was talking about how JFK took him into the Rose Garden and was like, don't, don't associate with communists anymore. And MLK was like, sure thing. And then he went and did it anyway. Now we have a special treat. I interviewed Professor Gerald Horn, the very historian I just mentioned the very historian I heard talk about Martin Luther King and JFK in the Rose Garden. Gerald Horn is a professor of history and African-American studies at Houston University and the author of books, including Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary, W.E.B. Du Bois, A Biography, The Deep South, The U.S., Brazil, and the African Slave Trade. Hoping to talk to you about Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Day, given that course it was Monday I tweeted out an article I had written it was just a listicle but it was 11 uh, anti-capitalist quotes from Martin Luther King and there was a huge backlash and I was accused of cherry-picking his his words his writing his ideas by people who I guess are would call themselves liberal but were very offended by the idea that uh, someone would try to f to frame him as anti-capitalist so I wanted to talk to a historian who's actually an expert in this area. And sure, let's let's get it on. Yeah, how would you respond to these people? I would say to these ind individuals that they are overreacting to the strength of conservatism in the United States. And probably they feel that if the true Martin Luther King Jr. would be revealed and exposed, then perhaps it could lead to a backlash against the King holiday, a backlash against, quote, liberals, unquote, uh, because they would be closely associated with Martin Luther King. But I think that they should relax, number one, because the true self sets you free. And number two, I think 
that too often liberals are rather nervous about the strength mm-hmm. of the right, which I totally understand because they are very powerful, and they're powerful in all classes within the Euro-American community. But at this particular moment, I think because of the global situation, we can push back against the right, and so the liberals should just relax. Martin Luther King, obviously he's incredibly whitewashed, no pun intended, by the right. But even people who are liberal are trying to I, I think that sometimes this, the image that people are taught um, about him is, makes him a much more moderate person and less militant and less radical. How would you describe his, his politics, his ideas, his ideology? I would say that Martin Luther King fundamentally was a social democrat, mm. and that's exposed and revealed by the last campaigns he was involved in. Number one, uh, protesting with workers, organized labor in Memphis, Tennessee, for higher wages and better condition, uh, better working conditions. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. All labor has dignity. Number two, the Poor People's Campaign, which was an attempt to tie up Washington with poor people of various backgrounds, ancestries, and ethnicities until their demands were met. Then the third point that I would make is look at who surrounded Martin Luther King. I mean, first of all, you may recall that it was in the early 1960s that President Kennedy took King into the Rose Garden to escape the surveillance at the White House he thought was operative of the FBI to warn King to distance himself from one of his key advisors, who was Jack O'Dell. Jack O'Dell was supposedly part of the U.S. Communist Party. Certainly, he was a labor organizer with what had been one of the left-led unions that was then purged during the Cold War, speaking of the National Maritime Union. Mm. And Martin Luther King pledged that he would distance himself from Jack, but he did not. Nice. And of course, that was picked up on FBI wiretaps and all the rest, which leads J. Edgar Hoover to say that um, Martin Luther King was a notorious liar. By the way, Jack Liddell used to be the chair of the board of Pacifica and is still in the land of the living uh, in self-imposed exile oh, in Vancouver, wow. British Columbia. Oh, I'm I going there. Mention, That's so funny. I should track him down. So. I should also mention that uh, many people understandably mentioned the speech that King made in April 1967, almost a year to the day before he was assassinated. And it was a speech in Upper Manhattan Riverside Church uh, denouncing and renouncing the war in Vietnam. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, 
And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government, for the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence. Which got into the hot water, not only with the White House, but with many editorial boards uh, and so-called prestigious newspapers. He predicted their criticisms within his very speech because he talks about how people say to him, why are you talking about peace? Why are you talking about militarism? You're, you're supposed to just care about civil rights. Why are you talking about economics? And of course, that's what a lot of the criticism was. Well, that's right. Many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. And obviously, that is fallacious thinking. When I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I'm nevertheless greatly saddened. For such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. There are obvious and almost facile connections between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others in waging in America. Because how can you attend to the domestic problems of health, care, and education right. and the needs of senior citizens without cutting the gargantuan military budget? Uh, obviously, the money has to come from somewhere, and it has to come from the 1% and from the Pentagon. And that still holds true today. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. But I would also point you to a speech that King made in February 1968, weeks before being assassinated, when he was speaking on behalf of Freedom Ways magazine, which was a left-leaning magazine targeting the black community, of which Jack was an editor. Mm. And in that speech, King praised W.E.B. Du Bois, rejected anti-communism, the reigning gospel of the U.S. ruling elite at that point, which he saw as leading the United States into the quagmire in Vietnam, not to mention partnerships with apartheid South Africa and racist Rhodesia. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has the revolutionary spirit. Communism is a judgment. And in a sense, communism is a judgment 
of our failure to make democracy real. I'm sure your listeners know that W.E.B. Du Bois was the founder of the NAACP, but who in 1961, before going into self-imposed exile in Ghana, West Africa, joined the U.S. Communist Party. And so when King praised Dr. Du Bois, that was a red flag to the bull of the U.S. ruling elite, and I might also say a goodly number of liberals as well. That was Professor Gerald Horn, and now more from Justin Williams. So yeah. that's that's sort of one of the things that my book deals with because it's the some of the groups of people that engage with decolonizing Africa have socialist and communist political leanings. Yeah, um, they, they were part of the civil rights coalition, and they're the kind of people that sort of get erased out of the civil rights narrative. Mm-hmm. But when Ghana becomes independent, they're all there because Ghana has a, a leftist on the world stage as its first president. Kwame Nkrumah, so he's considered the father of African independence. This mid-20th century is Africa's. This decade is the decade of African independence. Forward then to independence, to independence now. Tomorrow, the United States of Africa. So Ghana becomes independent in 1957. So that's, you know, you're talking about pre-voting rights act, pre-civil rights act. And in 1957, Martin Luther King actually visits Ghana Mm. uh, uh, for the independence celebration. And uh, because Kwame Nkrumah leads a campaign, which is called Positive Action, Boycotts, Strikes Against the British Government in Order to Achieve uh, Independence. And Martin Luther King actually flies back uh, to the Dexter Avenue Church saying, hey, this black guy in Africa just used nonviolence as a way to beat the British Empire. If he can do that, then we can beat the local sheriff. Wow. It was usually influential uh, and he, you know, uh, sort of an African independence was very much uh, inspirational to the civil rights movement. Because you have to remember, Kwame Nkrumah is dancing with the Duchess of Kent in 1957 as her equal as prime minister while black people can't vote in the South. Wow. Was the Duchess of Kent super woke or just. Wow. uh, That's like a Meghan Merkel moment, you know? It's uh, royalty uh, intermingling. Uh, and then across racial lines. And so we see the African and in Africans in the U.S., African-Americans as part of the diaspora. We're seeing uh, a connection with um, this is like even bigger than Pan-Africanism, where the uh, where Martin Luther King is being uh, affected positively by what's going on in in Africa. That's, that's pretty awesome. I didn't know that he had such a connection to uh, an international circle. No, I'm not from Ghana, but Africa is my mama, I believe is what Dead Press said. (laughs) Paraphrasing MLK. Now I know now. No, I wasn't born in Ghana, but Africa is my mama, and I did not end up here from back. What they they yelled at an audience of white kids with dreadlocks in Montana. I mean, I went to Wesleyan, so yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Connecticut. That's why we bucking holes in the ceiling when we hearing I'm an African. us about Martin Luther King's political evolution and, and lots of people kind of prop him up as the antithesis of M- of um, Malcolm X but it look it sounds like it seems like there was some absolutely towards the end they, they both sort of uh, sort of they moved to they moved towards actually sort of espousing a political economic position of the global left by the time that they're both uh, assassinated what we must all see is that these are revolutionary times All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation. And out of the wounds of a frail world, 
new systems and of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the earth are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. They would drop bombs on African villages that would blow that village apart and everything in it. Man, woman, child, and baby. No outcry, no sympathy, no support, no, no concern, because the press didn't project it in such a way that it would be designed to get your sympathy. And who are we supporting in Vietnam today? It's a man by the name of General Key who fought with the French against his own people and who said that the greatest hero of his life is Hitler. This is who we are supporting in Vietnam today. Oh, our government, the press generally won't tell us these things, but God told me to tell you this morning. Imagine this, this is criminal. Here's a man who's a murderer. So the United States takes him, puts him over the Congo, and supports his government with your tax dollars. Uh, and it's also trying to work uh, across class and racial lines. Both of them also come to sort of that realization towards the end. And that's sort of the like thing, if you're a conspiracy theorist, that's when sort of assassinations start occurring, right? It's when Malcolm X renounces the... Uh, racial separatism of the nation of islam and says i want to work across national and i want to work across class lines to achieve a sort of common vision of social justice you know it's when martin luther king starts going across class and racial lines for the sanitation strike uh in tennessee when fred hampton uh starts organizing with the sons and daughters of confederate coal miners in chicago to achieve wow. a common uh, uh you know with the black panther start organizing with them to achieve a common vision of social justice that he's then shotgunned right in his bed like conveniently a lot of people don't understand the Black Panther Party's uh, relationship with white mother country radicals. But what we're saying is that there are white people in the mother country that are for the same types of things that we are for stimulating revolution in the, in the mother country. And we said that we will work with anybody and form coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind. Racism is an excuse used for capitalism. And we know that racism is just is, is a byproduct of capitalism. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. And we're going to have to put it back in the hands of the people. Uh, the great thing about the Bernie movement is the Bernie movement in some ways is sort of a revival mm. of, of those things. Um, and so I think that's sort of like a, a positive thing. Even though Bernie's, Bernie's he's a little tricky on the specific issues of race, but he's very much about doing the pan-class movement. Right. And um, so I think that's, I mean, I th I can, you can say that's a positive thing, that that, is, uh, that vision has now sort of been resurrected within the, the mainstream Democratic Party. You say tricky like he doesn't have the most articulate uh, – well, what do you mean by tricky? And don't worry. This is a safe space. We allow Bernie criticism. No, it's not a, it's not a criticism at all. It's, uh, it's a guy that's a senator in Vermont. Right. You know, he's, he's, he's not used to dealing <laughs> – <laughs> with, with, with those with those kinds of issues you know and, and he didn't also have a, he didn't have a hot sauce in my bag line ready to go like he didn't have the sort of liter he, he just wasn't exposed on a daily basis yeah because it, it takes a certain skill to sort of talk about those things and then also it's he in his mind he might see it as sort of uh, a lot of ways inconvenient for his overall message because his populism uh, sort of does resonate with uh, elements of the Trump base and so for him, it's like talking race is sort of the the convenient sort of distraction that sort of can trigger those people and losing that part of of. of See, I feel right? like though he what he does is that he, um, 
gives a populist message. He emphasizes class. And he does, I mean, I feel like he doesn't say, like, he doesn't use the language that Hillary people will use, which I think can be very alienating about checking your white male privilege if you're talking to a coal miner, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, But yeah. <laughs> I think he does say, like, it's not, you know, trying to divide us and it's not a black uh, Latino brothers and sisters. They're not the enemy, blah, blah, blah. And, like, it really frustrates me when people, not that you were doing this at all, but when people yeah. compare him to Trump as if it's a bad thing. It's like, no, you want someone to compete with Trump. You want the person to nope. appeal, who's appealing to these people to be like, yes, you're angry. I feel your pain. You're right to be angry and blame uh, income inequality as opposed to blame Mexicans and Muslims. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's and that, I think that's uh, and th that's why I supported uh, yes. Bernie. I'm not, I, you know, I, 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 uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I have an interesting relationship. But I, I, I very much supported Bernie and raised money for him. Uh, but I, but I, uh, as a We're comedian, I do oh. enjoy Bernie supporters. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. I do. Uh, <laughs> it's like I mean, I mean, I will. I mean, you will, will you say it. Bernie supporters are very much still fighting that primary <laughs> on <Yes>. Twitter? <laughs> Although, to be fair, so are so, like, some Hillary some Clinton, Hillary some, some Hillary yeah. people. And yeah, the yeah. difference is like we don't have that many mainstream voices, and they do. Like we don't yeah. have that many mainstream media voices or pundit voices. But um, I have a question. We we do you know a Noah Changa? She has a show called The Way with a Noah. She's a podcast called The Way with a Noah. Make sure you sign up for our Patreon so you can hear the rest of our chat with Justin Williams and Gerald Horn. Though they agree that Martin Luther King was indeed radical, they have very different opinions on how to defeat Trump and Trumpism and the role of multiracial organizing. Become Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. To find out more about Justin Williams, you can go to justinwilliamscomedy.com. You can also find him on Twitter at Justin W. Comedy. You can find his comedy album, Mostly Woke, on Amazon and iTunes. Gerald Horn is a professor of history and African-American studies at Houston University and the author of books including Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary, W.E.B. Du Bois, A Biography, The Deep South, The U.S., Brazil, and the African Slave Trade, Cold War in a Hot Zone, The United States Confronts Labor and Independence Struggles in the British West Indies, Black and Red, W.B. Du Bois and the African-American Response to the Cold War. Black Liberation, Red Scare, Ben Davis and the Communist Party. He's written for Political Affairs, The Guardian. He's appeared on NPR, Democracy Now!, and The Real News. Make sure you check out my op-ed in the Daily News called Mayor de Blasio, It's Not Too Late to Honor the Legacy of Erica Garner, and I implore him to make the very basic changes that Erica Garner asked of him. It's based on my interview with her. And in case listeners don't know, Erica Garner was the daughter of Eric Garner, who was killed in a chokehold. I spoke to Erica Garner a few weeks before she died of a heart attack at the age of 27, leaving behind two children. And she never stopped fighting for justice against police brutality to honor her father, but also on behalf of all people who are victims or potential victims of police brutality. Please go to the Daily News and look for that and share it because I would really like Bill de Blasio to feel some pressure to actually do some of the things she asked for. Again, they're very simple. It's to fire the police officer who killed her father, release his records, and make the chokehold illegal. And you can find that pinned to my Twitter page. If you go to twitter.com slash KT helps, again, that's twitter.com slash letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. Please share it so that Bill de Blasio actually does the right thing. Thank you so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is produced by Florence Burrow-Adams with help from Joshua Bregman. Our theme song is by The Ballet. 